did this uh, first strategic arms reduction uh, treaty in U.S. history. Rick is also the U.S. chair of Global Zero, which is an international nonpartisan movement consisting of upwards of 300 world leaders from all disciplines, from former heads of government to military officers and, and uh, foreign and defense uh, <coughs> senior officials, all with uh, national security backgrounds uh, in, uh, in, in uh, position, high positions of government, um, dedica- and, and uh, half a million, upwards of a half a million uh, citizens around the world um, as well, dedicated to achieving an international binding uh, agreement for the elimination of nuclear weapons through phased, verified uh, reductions. Uh, to my far left, General Jack Sheehan, uh, a four-star Marine whose distinguished military career culminated in his appointment as the Supreme Allied Commander Atlantic. Uh, he retired from the military after his distinguished career in, in 1997 and took a position as senior vice president for the Bechtel International Corporation, uh, which uh, uh, he uh, served for uh, until this year, I believe, 2010. Uh, to my far right, uh, Valerie Plain Wilson hardly needs uh, an introduction. Um, um, Valerie um, served as a CIA operative, and her assignment was in the area of counterproliferation and until her cover was blown by our government a few, year, a few years ago. She had dedicated her life, her career, at some personal risk to protecting the rest of us from, uh, from nuclear, nuclear proliferation and, and nuclear terrorism. Thank you for your service, Valerie. <clears throat> We, uh, we're very eager to hear your reaction to the film and hear your questions to the panel, so I'm going to be as brief as I possibly can and just pose a, a question to, um, to two or three of the panelists, and then we'll uh, turn to the audience for, for your comments and, and questions. Starting with you, Rick. Ambassador Burt. Uh, Global Zero is... Uh, a wonderful goal, but what makes you think that it's actually uh, achievable? Well, I think there are probably uh, two reasons that that I do believe it is achievable. One is the fundamental change that has occurred in international relations in the last 20 or 25 years, and that 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 means the end of the Cold War. And, of course, during the Cold War, there was a very strong and convincing argument that uh, we needed to possess a a nuclear arsenal to deter uh, an attack from uh, a potentially very aggressive ideological adversary. And the idea of mutually assured destruction I think was viewed, generally speaking, as a stabilizing element in international relations. That we and the Soviet Union uh, were cautious and careful because even a small conflict could escalate to a major uh, international holocaust. That period is long gone. The likelihood of a nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia now is pretty much zero. And so the, the, the need for a large nuclear deterrent is pretty much zero. But the second change that's occurred since the end of the Cold War is a new threat, the one that was, I think, depicted very clearly in this film, which is the spread of nuclear materials, the spread of nuclear know-how, and the spread of nuclear weapons, and the associated threat of nuclear terrorism. 
And there, deterrence really doesn't work. If Al-Qaeda possesses nuclear weapons, they are not going to be deterred by 5,000 or 10,000 American nuclear weapons. They're going to use them against targets in the United States and elsewhere. And so the argument for having a nuclear deterrent is, in my view, rapidly fading. And so the, the threat is fundamentally different. And as I am quoted in this film as saying, uh, if we just stand still and do nothing, we could very well find ourselves in 10, 20, 30 years of living in a world of 25 or 30 nuclear powers. We already are living in a world where Pakistan, which has a failing state, where Al-Qaeda resides and has a stockpile of nuclear weapons. We could find ourselves in a situation where there are five or 10 Pakistans. And so the, the need and the urgency for doing something about it is there. Now, what we've done in the last 18 months under the auspices of Global Zero that Bruce was talking about is we've assembled a worldwide team of experts. And we, we, we have tried to put together a plan, a politically realistic and technologically sound plan for eliminating nuclear weapons, not tomorrow, not in five years, but over what is more likely a span of 20 years of realistic reductions, beginning with the United States and Russia, but then moving beyond the United States and Russia and bringing in the other nuclear weapon states, China, India, Pakistan, the British, the French, and yes, Israel, to substantially lower those numbers and finally get down to zero. Now, are, is this politically difficult? Yes, it is. There are a lot of countries who are, especially the newcomers to the nuclear club, they love their nuclear weapons. They think there's prestige in being a nuclear power. They think there's political glory. There are other countries who feel that they face threats where they need those nuclear weapons. But we believe, based on our analysis and our political co uh, consultations, that if we go step by step, we can achieve this goal. Now, what we need to do next, and then I'll turn the floor back over to you, Bruce, but what we need to do next is beyond ratifying this existing, this new treaty that the United States and Russia have signed, which is in a sense kind of taking the car out of the ditch and putting it back on the road, getting back into the business of nuclear arms control, which was suspended for far too long, is we need to be a little more ambitious, and that means being more comprehensive. Comprehensive in two ways. This treaty that hopefully will be ratified only limits nuclear weapons deployed on missiles and bombers. In a new round of U.S.-Russian negotiations, we have to begin to uh, eliminating or reducing all weapons, those that are in storage and those so-called tactical nuclear weapons, the shorter-range systems. And if we can get down to about 1,000 weapons, then we need to be comprehensive about who's going to come into these negotiations. And we think then is the time to bring in the Chinese, the Indians, and other nuclear powers. That will put us on the course of actually moving to zero. But it won't happen overnight, and it's going to take a great deal of political will. President Obama has showed leadership on this. President Medvedev in Russia has shown leadership. But now other political leaders in other countries are going to have to stand up and be counted. And that's why making this a political movement, getting people involved in this effort, not only here in the United States, but in other countries, both nuclear and non-nuclear, is very important. Hillary Flame. Based on uh, what you saw working in the agency as an operative and what you know today, what do you consider to be the gravest threat to the United States today, and now that you're out of the government, out of the agency, how are you uh, personally continuing to tackle uh, this danger as a private citizen? 
I would say without question, it is the nexus of where terrorism and WMD come into play. Um, because as Rick talked about, that is what has changed. Uh, in, in addition to that we no longer work within a bipolar world, what has changed is with the proliferation now of nuclear weapons, terrorists have the uh, opportunity to acquire them. And working within the CIA and what you, as uh, Rolf Moat Lawson, my former colleague in the CIA, talks so clearly about in the film, what is so shocking is how close they have come and how hard they are working to acquire them. Um, and that is truly what keeps uh, those of us working on this issue awake at night. Um, my, my personal journey from having worked on this in the CIA to where I am today um, has evolved. What I was working on in the CIA was madly trying to make sure through hopefully smart and secure and creative operations that uh, the proliferator was essentially, it was delaying. It was delaying the point to which uh, the day when uh, nuclear weapons would be acquired by uh, nation states or sub-nation states, terrorist groups. Um, and all that is doing is you're just essentially trying to buy time so that perhaps other diplomatic initiatives, other methods might be uh, deployed to help slow this. But I've, I've changed now where I, I do believe, and this has changed from my personal thinking, that the only way that you can prevent this ultimately is to set as your goal zero. No one is saying that we're going to do this unilaterally. No one is saying that it's going to be a fast process. I think uh, Rick made that very clear. Uh, but it, 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 you have to set that as a lofty goal. I believe that we are a great enough nation, and in, particularly in this arena, can demonstrate huge leadership to say, here's where we want to be, and here's how we're going to get there, and bring the rest of the world along. Um, this film uh, is, is a wonderful starting point. Because I'm guessing, maybe some of you follow this and read it, and, but it is such an overwhelming uh, topic that because we're only human and it's hard to comprehend what a deployment of a nuclear weapon really means, you put it to the back of your mind because you're much more worried about the traffic on the way to work. That's normal. Um, so it, it, it is so overwhelming. But this film, what I think it does, it restarts this conversation which has been dormant for so long. And we do have this tremendous window of opportunity where we have a president who has, as a candidate, spoke about this. And now that he is in office, he is taking concrete steps to move toward that. Um, and this just, we're hopeful that this film kickstarts this conversation. And what, we, what you have done with the World Security Institute and the Global Zero um, and uh, students that have gone out across the entire nation talking to other universities, showing this film, it, it, it gives you ways at the end of the film, they told you, you know, text, so forth, I forget the number, uh, but ways to get involved on an individual level. Um, but this is, you, just, you have to start somewhere. Uh, and otherwise, we are all just blindly going down a path of destruction. Thanks, Valerie. A general's perspective. Uh, we heard from Ambassador Burt that the urgency, the need for a nuclear deterrent uh, is rapidly fading and that the security priorities of the country are uh, shifting dramatically from what they were during the Cold War, uh, which put a huge premium on the uh, on the nuclear deterrent on its political and military utility what's changed and you from from point of view of a, a general um, when we lived in a bipolar world us and russia clearly it's been articulated here that the weapons had a deterrent value and did have a military value they also had a political value ever since the collapse of the soviet union the advances that have been conducted in conventional technologies allow the United States to destroy just about any target on any spot in the world with 500 
feed accuracy. So from a U.S. perspective, nuclear weapons as a counterforce weapon have been diminished. What's interesting about the current debate, and you see the subtext here in the conversation, Valerie's saying that we live in an increasingly unstable world because of terrorism. And so when you look at what we call the rational states, that's the U.S., France, Britain, and even Russia, who lived with weapons for 50 years, they all are arriving at the conclusion that a build-down program is essential for two reasons. One is that they don't have a war-fighting component to them anymore. Two is they're extremely expensive. Britain will draw down its Trident program because of cost. France, if it maintains its momentum for increased European integration, will figure out some way to come up with an Article 5, NATO Article 5 protection umbrella where the U.S. could extend that umbrella over France for certain reasons. The real dichotomy is that while the West is moving toward this conventional use of conventional force instead of over-reliance on nuclear forces, we have nation states, Pakistan, India, North Korea, Iran, who are using weapons as a weapon of national pride. In the case of India and Pakistan, it is still a counterforce because of the imbalance of conventional forces. So the real, the real crux of the problem that we have to face with as Americans, because as has been said before, we just can't unilaterally do away with our weapons. We, can't, we can convince the Russians to build down, which puts pressure on the proliferation states. But somehow or another, we're going to have to cross a nexus and a bridge that essentially says... We have to convince the North Koreas, the Irans, it is no longer in their best interest to proliferate weapons. That's going to be the extreme hard part. I think that reasonable people can both ratify SALT, continue down the road of increased reductions. Budget pressures in Europe will cause the weapons in Europe to come down. The real problem will be five years, ten years from now, we have to face the Iranian-North Korean problem from a war-fighting perspective. Thanks, General. Um, I'd like to open up the floor to questions, but before doing so, I would just like to acknowledge uh, a couple of students here, um, Andrea and, and Drew, I believe. If you're here, could you, could you stand up? Uh, and uh, these are two students who are among... Um, hundreds who have in the last year or so joined glo the Global Zero movement, including um, Andrea, who formed the first Global Zero chapter here in Colorado at the University of Colorado at, at Boulder. So I would just like to invite you quickly to explain to us, uh, as, as, as young people um, <laughs> with unique uh, view of, of all of this. What motivated you to become involved in in this issue? It, here's a. In a world that's becoming increasingly globalized. I believe that we can't afford anymore to be listening to our worst fears. Um, I don't think that nuclear weapons are an appropriate or an effective um, form of defense as well as offense. And I don't think that, you know, I would not like to be a part of a country that is that has used them um, against another country. Um, I don't think that we need to see that again. Uh, if you believe in... Um, war crimes at all or, um, you know, are worried about climate change, then I think uh, that you can also be against the use of nuclear weapons and that it should be phased down to zero. Um, I, I guess I got more involved with Global Zero once I found out the opportunity to travel around um, and spread the word, and I thought that was very important for our generation, the millennials, to uh, get reinvolved in this movement to get rid of nuclear weapons because we were born at the tail end of the Cold War, and we don't think about 
nuclear weapons. It wasn't a threat to our generation. So I think it's important, and I wanted to help to get our, you know, people our age, because we're the ones who are going to have to finish what these people started. So. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there are about 30 chapters of Global Zero that have been formed in the United States and another uh, 20 or so that uh, have been established around the world. So it, uh, it's off to a good start. Could I now invite, uh, invite any of you in the audience to ask questions, starting here and then to the back? I'm just wondering, uh, who's buying the nuclear material from all of these, um, you know, enrichment factories, you know, the material smuggled out of enrichment factories in Russia and whatnot, and what are they doing with it? take it. Um, To the best of our knowledge, when it is, particularly in the former Soviet Republic, uh, uh, those countries where it is not well secured, and the film does a really good job, I think, of, you know, potatoes are better guarded than HEU. Um, It is going, we only probably are able to confiscate one to five percent. It is going to out into the black market, and from there, who knows? I mean, that, that is what our intelligence services are trying to figure out. Where does it go? What is the procurement network? What is the, the chain? Um, it's, it's one thing to, there's horror enough thinking of miscalculation or accident under those countries that are declared nuclear powers, and we saw how human error, of course, factors into it. It's a completely different set of risks when you talk about unsecured HEU, highly enriched uranium. You don't know where it's going. Uh, we do know as a fact, as I said earlier, terrorists, Al-Qaeda and other groups um, are certainly looking for this. And uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be building, building a full-on nuclear bomb is very difficult. It takes a lot of infrastructure to do that. But putting together a radiological bomb, dirty bomb, if you will, with much less uh, material, radiological material, is, I'm sorry to say, much easier to do. So how much uncertainty is there about the quantity of of, uh, bomb-grade material that has leaked into the black market? To the the best of my knowledge, numbers, we're able to ascertain, I mean, based on analysis, that we are confiscating 5%, which means 95% is flowing through, and I'm trying to think of the number of how many kilograms, you know, how much. Well, I think that there have been about 17 kilograms of of, uh, of uh, weapons-grade materials that have been confiscated mm-hmm. in, over the last 15 years or so. And if that represents only, and, and that's almost enough for one, one mm-hmm. nuclear weapon, mm-hmm. if that represents only 5% of the total, <laughs> yeah. then you're, the looki- you're looking at uh, maybe a dozen uh, uh-huh. bombs worth of materials out uh, in, some, in some Out there, the out there in the big world. Just from a standpoint of uh, control of fissionable material has been said in the room here. U.S. and Russia control 96% of the weapons and also control significant part of the material that makes those weapons. We have been working with Russia and the United States now for since the collapse of the Soviet Union for the control of that material. And that program is funded by the U.S. government, U.S. contractors, et cetera, with willing engagement on the part of the Russians. So there is a large part of this material that is under control. Now, the question is, is it equal to or greater than the U.S. control of our own material? And the answer is no, it's not. So the loss of any small amount is a concern. But from your perspective, what you should be concerned about is that the U.S. continue that relationship with Russia for the control of material because it's an example to other nations. We deal with the French, we deal with the Germans, everybody else in the control of material. The real issue is going to become, will we be able to put into place an international regime for the control of that material? And short-term problem is if you have a country like Pakistan where the weapons are managed by the military, where you basically have a single dual failure point 
and that material is guarded by a military that's infiltrated by the ISI that is capable of being penetrated, then you really do have a legitimate question and a legitimate problem. But in terms of the gross amount of material that's in the world, I'd say 90 plus percent of that stuff is very well controlled and a very well funded program that's managed by the both the International Atomic Energy Agency and our own laboratories here in the United States. Good point. I think back here is questions. Do the stereo. Um, my name is Al Jubas, Portland, Oregon. Uh, much the film was great. Thank you for doing it. Uh, I've been educating on this topic uh, for 35 years, uh, with a break, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I've apologized. I was born one year, one month, and two days before Hiroshima, and yet I feel a gut level responsibility for the actions of this country, and I've apologized to my Japanese friends. I share the attitude of this young woman that says I don't want to be part of a country, and I've never said this publicly, that would ever consider using a weapon of mass destruction, period. I think we need the moral high ground. We unilaterally started this thing. Why can't we unilaterally declare it's over? We're not going to use them. We're going to disarm. Why is that thought so hard for us to deal with? You know, if we're poisoning our kids, we'd stop poisoning them. You know, we found out we're doing that. I applaud the, the, the effort, the conscious way. I know there are political reasons. 20 years is better than nothing for sure. Step down is kind of a political response. I think we could do it in 10 years or five years. But if we did it, imagine what would happen around the world. Everybody would have to question, why do we have these things? So that's my question. Can't we do it unilaterally? Can't we do it faster? And can't we believe that we don't need those weapons? Is it, that's, that's my question. Well, you know, I'm a little bit of a historian about the anti-nuclear movement since uh, the 1940s when the United States had a nuclear monopoly. And maybe we uh, missed the boat in the, uh, in the late 40s when the United States made an effort, and there was something you may recall called the Baruch Plan, and the idea was that the United States was going to turn over its nuclear arsenal, which at that point was very, very small, really very small number of weapons to the United Nations. And what stopped that dead in its tracks was the uh, Soviet testing of their own nuclear weapons. And that came at a time when War in Korea had started. There was a McCarthy movement in this country. There was a kind of morbid fear that, you know, the communists were under everybody's bed, that somebody had lost China. And uh, the politics of the United States uh, radically changed. And the idea of the United States giving, handing over its nuclear weapons to the United Nations, the idea of unilateral disarmament became a political non-starter. And what's interesting is following that period, in the mid-50s, uh, when the Republican Party still believed in fiscal discipline, uh, the United States adopted a strategy of massive retaliation. It was really a, a budgetary policy. Eisenhower didn't want to increase the defense budget. There was no way the United States and its NATO allies was going to match the Soviet Union, soldier for soldier, tank for tank in Europe. And we were going to use nuclear weapons as a crutch. 
and we used nuclear weapons as a crutch all through the Cold War. We had a strategy which said we could be the first to use nuclear weapons because we didn't think we could prevail in a conventional conflict in Europe. Now, the world has fundamentally changed. But just this week, and we were talking about this earlier this evening, just this week, I read an editorial in the Washington Post, and I'm telling you this is a Republican political appointee who worked for Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush by Mitt Romney saying that he couldn't support the new START treaty with Russia because we had sold out to the Russians, that we'd been Oh, that Barack Obama had been out negotiating. There were so many factual errors in this article, I don't even know where to start. So my answer to your question is that as much as maybe some unilateral steps, and we have taken unilateral steps. For example, we haven't tested a nuclear weapon in this country since 1972. But you are not going to get, in the current political atmosphere, that is so polarized in Washington that you are not going to get support for unilateral nuclear disarmament. Uh, you, the only sustainable way, and we spent a good deal of time thinking about this amongst ourselves when we launched the Global Zero Initiative, you're not going to get it accepted by the American public or any other public for that matter, in my view, unless it is reciprocal and it is negotiated. That, that is, is, it may take longer, it may be harder, it always, negotiations always are a lot harder, but I think that's the only way you're gonna get the skeptics, the conservatives, the, 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 what, the, 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 the people who uh, are too focused on their own kind of security concerns to take a more global attitude in, in every country. So I'm afraid that it's, it's, it, it may be painful, but it's probably, in, it's probably the only way to really achieve sustainable arms control. And, and I think that's just the political reality. I'd really like to take a couple more questions, so if you could be, uh, be fairly brief, I'd appreciate it. I'll go right here in the front and then back, back to the back. Um, just a quick question. One, I believe this is necessary and it's feasible. So I want to raise a question for the filmmakers about a lost opportunity. Uh, if you, you showed the failure of the Reagan-Gorbachev talks, but with President George Herbert Walker Bush in the spring of 92, uh, Bill Clinton in the spring of uh, 97, and then George uh, W. Bush in the spring of 2002, the countdown began. And so one of my questions, the lost opportunity in the film, was actually recognizing the countdown beginning at that time and the numbers actually coming down. So I think it would have been effective to let people know this is actually happening. And then secondly, um, then in, in that con I want to know, on the solution set, um, I, I work for a large energy company. We have nuclear power plants. 50% of the power we generate is coming from Russian nuclear materials. And that's a big, inspiring story. We're actually burning the stuff down and making energy with it. Um, so I'm curious why you, and of course Libya was left out. I mean, the fact all that material came across by ship to, to South Carolina, that's a, I think that's a much bigger deal than the example you gave with South Africa. So I'm just curious about the editorial choices on that. We have to get you to make the second movie. <laughs> <laughs> actually, Libya isn't left out. But... Um, you know, when you're making a film and you're telling a story, you obviously have to make choices, and you cannot put everything, you know, into a film or you won't have a story. I mean, you just have a bunch of facts and figures, and, you know, you can... It's just a, it's a, it's a different thing. Um, the, you know, the main reason that we made this film at this time um, was exactly as I think you've heard sort of every panelist here talk about is that we are at a critical point. You know, we obviously contextualize the situation we're in now with, with history, and we use the Kennedy speech, you know, as sort of a narrative arc and a way to link um, the film historically to where we are currently. Um, but the idea is that we really want people to come away with is this is a real problem, it is a real threat, Yes, there are reductions. 
we point specifically now to the hope with the current situation that is unfolding as we speak. And again, if there are people who want to personally get involved, and I, I know it is a big issue and it's a political issue and it has to be dealt with at a political global level, but, but there is a treaty that has to be ratified by this Senate. It's something very concrete if you want to talk about reductions and what people can do and why we made this film, that's something you can do. The text is 77177, text 077177. You can sign on to you know, support the start, the treaty ratification. You can sign on to become a global, a global zero member, to go to zero. But as, as Ambassador Bird says in the film, I think citizen involvement and, and, and speaking out and being part of, you know, the free, there was a very, very large movement in this country, with the largest movement I think we've ever had in terms of numbers of people that mobilized against nuclear weapons, gone. And now is the opportunity, we have an opportunity, you know, you can look at history, we can say we're fortunate, as horrible and horrendous, and I agree with the speaker earlier, that we actually had, that we dropped these bombs and we cause that devastation. We have an opportunity in terms of every person in this room to at least take a stand ourselves to try to do something. Obviously, it is something that must be dealt with on a political level. But that doesn't mean that people are helpless in this, in this, in this effort. And so that's really why we made the film. You know, it's, it's, it's a film made for you. And, and obviously we want it, you know, and by the way, there are many people in the current administration as well as other countries, major political leaders who have seen this film. But it wasn't made for them. It was made for you. And it was made for an international audience of, you know, to, to, to make you aware and to hopefully mobilize you to at least say, you know, I don't want to live in a world like this and let's change it. Rick has a brief yeah, I just want to. I want to come. I, I want to follow up something that Diane just said because, in a sense, we haven't really, I think, adequately verbalized it. And that is, there's a point in this film where uh, Joe Cirincione and makes a really interesting point where he talks about chemical weapons and biological weapons being taboo. And here's what's interesting: nuclear weapons are vastly more destructive than either chemical or uh, 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 biological weapons. Well, well, isn't it interesting, though, that chemical and biological weapons are taboo, but nuclear weapons in Washington, Moscow, Tel Aviv, any, anywhere, are seen as legitimate instruments of political influence and national security. And that is the danger with proliferation. And that's what I think this whole arms control effort, this global zero effort is all about, is until or unless the existing nuclear powers really demonstrate that they are committed to moving to zero, every other nation in the world is going to view <coughs> nuclear weapons as a legitimate means of influence and state power. The problem 40 or 50 years ago was there only a few countries in the world that had the technological and financial means of achieving them. Now this technology is widely available to everybody. So that is our objective here. We've got to make these weapons taboo. And the only way to do that is to be serious about global zero, to, to, to demonstrate that we, that in a credible way, that the existing nuclear weapon states are working to get down to zero. That's the whole link between arms control, U.S.-Russian negotiations, broader negotiations, and the problem of nuclear proliferation and terrorism. That's what this is all about. I think uh, we, we should um, continue for a while longer. Uh, there's a question back here, and then, and then we'll cross the aisle. Thanks. Jack Hittery. The film does a really good job of addressing the fact that at several occasions there's been an almost launch of a nuclear missile uh, at several points in the last 30, 40 years. 
Since the fall of the Soviet Union, has there been a real discussion with the Russians about actually taking off of launch ready, actually taking the warheads off? And I guess second, was there any consideration of actually putting like an auto-detonation device on these things? So if it was accidentally launched, you can actually blow it up in midair. Where do we kind of stand on this potential launch issue? On the, on the latter question, there's never been any serious um, consideration of putting launch destruction devices on missiles that would allow a country to blow them up if they've been, uh, after they've been launched, out of fear that the, 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 the enemy would uh, crack the code and figure out a way to destroy, destroy those, uh, those missiles uh, and, and thereby neutralize the whole sort of deterrent concept. Um, there, has, there has been no serious government-to-government -government discussion about taking nuclear weapons off air trigger alert, even though it has been an agenda item um, uh, that has been popularly discussed and debated in, in the sort of the academic think tank community and to some extent within lower ranks of, uh, of the government for, for probably 25 years. Uh, it was on in the political, uh, it was in the election campaign platform of, uh, of President Obama to take nuclear weapons off air trigger alert, as well as his predecessor, George Bush. Uh, <clears throat> but somewhere along the line, this idea gets, uh, gets d d derailed. The Russians have a very hard time with the concept. They think the natural state of a missile is to be poised for immediate launch with a nuclear bomb on board. And so, uh, unfortunately, though, that's a common view held, held uh, uh, by, our, uh, by our side and others as well. Over here, please. Hi, Seth Berger. Um, it sounds to me, and in, in watching the film, that much of the program that, that you are advocating is, revolves around responsible nation states. And the general, in his comments a few moments ago, talked about that five or ten years down the road, uh, how do we take the irresponsible nation states, the Irans, the North Koreas? What is the, the longer-term strategy? I, I, I totally understand where you're starting, but clearly you have thought this through. What is the hope? How do you convert those irresponsible nation states? And then a second question is does the proliferation of peaceful nuclear for energy purposes around the globe, I understand the technological, well, I don't really understand it, but the, the difference between highly enriched and, and not highly enriched and the ability to make bombs versus dirty bombs. Um, how do we control the material that comes out of that, pro excuse me, that program um, so that we don't have dirty weapons even though we may not have nuclear weapons. Well, on the on the first question, the, the sort of issue of responsible versus irresponsible, I think one one thing to recognize is that historically uh, there's been a tendency to ascribe irresponsibility to every new nuclear weapon state. In uh, as I was alluding to earlier, when uh, when the Soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons and Joseph Stalin was in power, there were people who were saying, this is uh, a catastrophe because Stalin will use nuclear weapons. And when, uh, when the Chinese acquired nuclear weapons under Mao Zedong, the same argument was made. So it's not clear that every new state is always irresponsible, but there are irresponsible states, and I would certainly put North Korea in that category. And uh, here, uh, you've got to basically base your policy, I would say, on tra traditional diplomacy and methods of exercising influence. And the, the solution in the case of North Korea, as far as I'm concerned, is China. China could stop that program. China has tremendous influence, potentially, on North Korea. They're, they view North Korea a little differently. They're worried about a collapse of that state and what that would mean for Korean immigration into China, uh, another several million mouths to feed, instability on the Korean peninsula. 
but uh, I think there is some kind of progress steadily being made with the Chinese to, uh, to step up and take and be more responsible about the problem of North Korea. Now, I'm going to say something here that may shock some people in the audience. I do not consider Iran a crazy state. I do not think that uh, they, if they were to acquire nuclear weapons, would start launching them in all directions and attacking Israel. Uh, Iran has, has not been traditionally an aggressive state in the region. Uh, I'm not comfortable about Iran going nuclear, mainly because it could set off a cascade of other countries thinking about their nuclear options, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and others. And I wouldn't want to see a number of nuclear powers in a very volatile region like the Middle East. But I think that one of the keys to the Iranian problem, to be very honest with you, is the global zero concept. If we're able to do what I was talking about earlier, and that is make nuclear acquisition increasingly uh, a political taboo, and a country deciding to go nuclear becoming increasingly a pariah state, then it's harder, I think, for any country, including the authorities in Tehran, to think about that option. And I think there's still an opportunity here. And now I'm even going to take a step further. I think that Israel could play an, an interesting role here. I was just talking earlier about how we, as, a, as the United States, used nuclear weapons as a crutch in the 50s and 60s because we felt conventionally inferior. I think the Israelis did the same thing when they acquired their own nuclear deterrent in the 60s and 70s. They felt conventionally inferior to the then Arab armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. Israel is not in that strategic position now. They clearly enjoy conventional military preeminence. They can whip any Arab army or collection of Arab armies very easily. Their problem, Israel's security problem, is Hezbollah. It's Hamas. It's terrorism. Israel isn't going to use nuclear weapons in southern Lebanon. They're not going to use nuclear weapons in Gaza. I think it would be a brilliant political strategy for Israel to promote a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. That called, on, that called on very intrusive and rigorous verification in every state in the region, including Iran. I think that would put the Iranians on the defensive. It would make it enormously difficult for the Iranians to go forward with their own nuclear program. And, uh, and, with a big, and if it were adopted, a very rigorous, intrusive verification program in Iran in, uh, in Iran would stop their nuclear weapons program in the tracks. So, you know, I, I, think there, I think that there are some exceptions in terms of unreasonable states, but I, I think that by and large, the program we've outlined is going, is going to really uh, uh, dissuade governments around the world from thinking seriously about going nuclear. And the alternative to that no nuclear zone in the Middle East is quite possibly a uh, region that is fraught with nuclear armed states. And that's almost certainly uh, a worse security alternative for Israel than the option that Rick outlined. Now, just quickly on the second question, we, uh, as part of Global Zero and in general, we uh, must devise new rules of the road for the civilian nuclear power industry so that countries like Iran cannot develop nuclear weapons capacity under the legal guise provided by the Non-Proliferation Treaty of, of enriching uranium or otherwise uh, coming right up to the threshold of nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons capacity. That's currently permissible under international law, and that's got, that's got to be changed. And Iran, uh, Iran is Exhibit A uh, in, in, this, in this regard. 
Yep. We've gone way, way over what, what's allowed, but uh, I, I don't mind if no That's one else cool. does. Do one more I mean, question. Uh, one more question. Maybe there I, is I think one. If there, way back there. <laughs> okay. Hi, it was an amazing movie, thank you. For many years, the U.S. has had preconditions to talk to people we have problems with. Um, Obama seems to be, you know, less of, of that ilk and is more open to direct dialogue. But what would happen if we empowered some of these countries who want the power of the bomb? To, uh, what if we had more dialogue? What if we invited Al-Qaeda to a discussion? What, what would happen? We, you know, you could say that, well, you're legitimizing them and you're giving them too much power, but they're going to get the power either by the voice or by the, the bomb. So what stops us from having informal, uh, under-the-table talks? Well, I'm going to make two comments on your question. First of all, I, I would, I'd like to invite al-Qaeda to a dialogue, and as soon as they showed up, I'd like to put them in handcuffs and throw them in the slammer, okay? That's my first one. You know. <laughs> okay, but, but secondly, this goes back to this question about reasonable states. You know, one thing that, and I, I'm speaking, pre, and I'm not speaking here for Global Zero, but one thing I have to tell you that I don't quite understand about Iran and the Obama administration is somewhere, and I know they had this, phony election, and I know that, you know, they, they beat up protesters in the streets, and I didn't like that, but there was a commitment made by the Obama administration to have a dialogue with the Iranians, and we never really got around to doing that. And I wish that we had, or I wish that we would, uh, because they do have some legitimate grievances, not just against us, but to others. And by the way, we have a lot of legitimate grievances against them. But we've never really had a serious discussion with the Iranians. And I wish we could have that at some point. That's correct. That's correct. Mossadegh. Look, who knows whether that dialogue's going to go anywhere, but I do think at some point, at some stage, particularly before we or the Israelis bomb them, we should have that discussion. Thank you, Rick. On that note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>